Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com, and I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, as our own Lexapol's Gordon Graham is wont to say, predictable is preventable. And that is probably true when it comes to homicide spikes nationwide in 2020 and 2021. In his article, Peter Moskos uh, writes about uh, Wall, on the Wall Street Journal, the New York City where murder increased 47% in 2020 provides a clear case of how local factors come to a head. City jails that once held over 21,000 people had fewer than 8,000 inmates by 2019. In January 2020, state bail reforms took effect, spurring the release of about 1,000 inmates just before the pandemic began. In April, another 1,500 inmates were released to prevent the spread of COVID in the jails. Well, there are a variety of measures depending on those looking to control crime with counterintuitive measures bail reform, red flag laws, COVID releases, defunding police, gun control, restorative justice, and many others. Yet still, we have seen a rise in shootings and murders. Today, we may hear why these tactics do not work and what needs to be done to bring things back to reason. Well, Peter Moskos is a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in the Department of Law, Police Science, and Criminal Justice Administration. And he is the CUNY Graduate Center in the Department of Sociology. He is a former Baltimore Police Department officer. Thanks for your work and welcome to Policing Matters, Peter Moskos. Thanks for having me on, Jim. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I really enjoy reading your articles and uh, I've been trying to get a hold of you for a while now. And your recent article in the Wall Street Journal entitled The Murder Spike of 2020 When Police Pull Back just came out and it's really interesting. It talks about a lot of the things that affect uh, the spikes, not only in New York, but uh, in major cities across um, the United States. So what made you, what prompted you to start the research? Uh, well, <laughs> in the short term, it was because they approached me and said, you want to write a 2000 word piece for the Wall Street Journal on the rise in violence um, and we'll pay you, which is uh, unusual in this day and age. And I said, absolutely. Um, it was actually a, a pleasant but incredibly slow process for unimportant reasons. Um, it started almost almost a year ago, um, but in some way, but in, in many ways, that was good because it, it gave another year of perspective um, and data um, to figure out what the hell happened last year. Um, because I mean, the, the murder rise was unprecedented. It's it's the largest yearly increase um, in American history. Like, and we still don't know exactly how much is going to be, but, but, you know, roughly 30% in that range, 25, 30%, maybe a little more, maybe less. Um, that's never happened before. Um, and what was very frustrating last year, along with everything else going on, um, is there was a strong, at least in the academic world, uh, uh, I mean, cops, of course, knew what was going on on the street, but in the academic world, there was simple denial. Um, that it wasn't happening, that it's not a big deal, all the sort of usual obfuscations and 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 just very dismissive of the the victims of the carnage of the bloodshed. Um, and so that was frustrating. Um, and I think I got the attention of the newspaper because I started a collection of of essays, a website, the Violence uh, Reduction Project. Um, that came out around uh, Christmas of last year. And my idea was, look, violence went up quickly. I, it, we, it can go down quickly. We don't have to fix society. 
um, we can simply focus on violence. And I brought together a lot of different people. It's mostly um, police focused, but not exclusively. Um, and saying, look, you know, what, what can we do now? Um, I, I, I don't, I mean, at some level, I do care why it happened historically, but that's not the important thing. People are getting killed and, the, and it's preventable. Um, so that that's sort of the focus I went going into the piece. Um, and then I wanted to provide some nuance. And ironically, the headline, which writers don't write, I think doesn't actually show that nuance. The article isn't about why, isn't about policing pulling back, though that's part of the story. Um, it's a combination of factors, but I focus on the impact of a lot of different elements, but less policing, uh, which is different than policing pulling back because less policing is often by design now um, and the harmful effects of, of less proactive enforcement and it's, and it's linked to violence. Um, so you have this sort of combination of factors. Um, everything, I mean, the, the, the main thing were protests after the murder of George Floyd. That, that, that's when violence went up. It didn't go up with COVID. It didn't go up when people lost their jobs. Um, it went up in the wake of the protests and the, and the, and the violence. Um, the question is why? You know, it's, even that is not quite a cause, uh, but it can contribute to the cause, which is policing changed. Mm -hmm. um, partly directly because, as I sort of joke, the cops that were seen in riot gear that angered so many people on the left, um, it's not like they're in cryogenic freeze in the armory just waiting for this day. Um, you know, they would be doing what they normally do. Um, with whatever, you know, moderate effectiveness that has. So there was a direct impact at that level. But the greater impact is um, people with political power said they want cops to do less. And some of sometimes for good reasons, I think sometimes for bad reasons. Uh, but those policies have consequences. And then you combine it with a fear among police of viral videos and um, you know, I, I joke that I'm old enough to remember when cops had to do something bad to get in trouble. But the fear now is you do something proper and you still get in trouble simply because you use force and it looked ugly. Um, and that is a real detrimental uh, effect on, on cops and on, on policing. Yeah. And the effect that it has in, in sort of getting them to retreat, getting law enforcement professionals to retreat because of that fear of the consequences. And speaking of consequences, the unintended consequences of this progressive agenda to lower jail population and decriminalize or even legalize drugs, as we've seen in, in Oregon. I mean, you you point out in the article that there are it the problem is multifaceted. And yet you you have progressives who say, well, wait a minute, even though there's a rise, it still doesn't meet the the numbers of murders that we had in the 90s. And of course, do we have to go back to that to, I know, I did, to get it to a swing? It, it makes it makes me angry because, yeah, so, so what? Um, and COVID doesn't have to be as bad as, as the 1919 flu pandemic to have us worry about it. Um, it's just a weird benchmark. Um, but what it is, it, it's a disingenuous response because... I, I hate to generalize like this, so but you know, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, but to some extent, they don't care. Um, it's not about 1990 levels of crime. It's about they're, they're playing this three moves ahead in some game of chess when we should be just worried about a game of checkers right now. Um, they're worried about uh, overreaction, as they put it, leading to further mass incarceration um, that or and or whatever their little 
pet project is that they have funding for. And um, I mean, that, that could be anything related to, you know, neighborhood groups, community violence prevention. It could be something about health. I mean, whatever their, their field is. Um, but that's what they're focused on. And they're afraid that the narrative will slip their hand. First of all, there's an arrogance to think these academics actually control the narrative. Um, people watch Fox News regardless of what some professor in some law school is saying. Um, but I, I've said this and I've said it for years and no one listens. Uh, but if, if the goal is to prevent right-wing overreaction to crime, then you prevent crime. That's how you do it. You don't deny uh, you don't deny the trauma of violence. Um, and you certainly, you shouldn't deny it when it's increasing. And certainly when that increase is actually disproportionately affecting black and brown men. Um, so you have all these things that come together. Um, and yeah, so the crime increase is denied, it's, it's contextualized. And then, you know, they wait long enough for, until it's a new normal. And then they can say, hey, look, shootings are down a bit this year. I mean, we saw it in Baltimore in 2015. We saw it in Chicago in 2016. Um, there is a there is a foundation that is rooted in police abolition. Um, and that doesn't mean every supporter of defund um, is a police abolitionist. Um, and it doesn't mean aspects theoretically of defund aren't good. Cops would love to not have to deal with mental health crises and, and homeless related issues. That's fine. Absolutely. Um, it's not my professional field. So I focus on the policing side, um, but it's other people's fields, people who are advocating for funding. So, so solve it. You know, the second cops don't have to deal with that stuff, then, then great. Then cops won't have to deal with it. But in the meantime, calls for police are increasing. I mean, I know the New York data better than, most other cities and New York is, you know, always a little bit of an outlier, atypical city. But in the cities I've looked at, you, you just see these common trends, which is less enforcement leads to more demand for police services because other agencies simply aren't, can't or won't pick up the slack. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of sort of putting the cart before the horse on this type of thing. But one of my fears and look, politically, I'm, 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 I'm there's a small intersection in a Venn diagram of of pro-policing liberals that I put myself in. Uh, but all the reforms that have happened over the past years have not been bad, but the bad parts of it are so obvious and so glaring um, that it, it makes me want to hit my head against the wall. In New York, um, the judges are not allowed to consider public danger in terms of setting cash bail. Um, that's dangerous. Um, and it, you know, it risks, you know, it risks a right wing overreaction. Uh, they could do away with the whole thing. Parts of bail reform are good. The bad parts, though, they need to be pushed back against. Um, there is a fringe element that wrote a lot of this and got implemented without discussion, debate or asking the stakeholders, um, you know, to take incarceration levels. Um, I think a lot of people and I mentioned this in that Wall Street Journal article, um, we managed to reduce violence and incarceration at the same time. Um, America does have an absurdly high level of incarceration that's unique to not only to America, but it's unique to America in, in the past few decades. America wasn't always like this. We, we can do better. Um, but we were doing better. Um, at some point, you know, I don't know what the correct number of people that should be in New York City jails is at any given moment. Um, but we were reducing it and keeping the streets safe. Um, you know, some point is not a linear relation. If we get, if we release everyone, the streets won't be safer. And so I think we've crossed certain lines, both by design with bail reform and then by circumstance with COVID release. But at some point, it's not that everyone released is out there shooting people, but, but some of them are. 
Sure, and and these policies made in a vacuum, uh, certainly some unintended consequences are not foreseen. And then we have the problem, I think DOJ or NIJ just did a study that said more than 55% of those uh, released without bail um, come back to recidivate, that they commit another crime even before their original charge has been uh, adjudicated. And that's, you know, those are the ones who get caught, let's point out. Right. Um, so the numbers are higher. Um, and, you know, if it's for, if it's is for a nonviolent offense, not that I want to defend that, but okay, that's one thing. Uh, maybe you do take your chances uh, because the same thing. Yeah, we could lock everybody up forever and no one would recidivate on the street, but that's not good either. I mean, we there's a, you know, there's a balance here um, and bad things are going to happen. Um, you know, we have to accept that on all sides. Yeah, sometimes someone will get released and they'll do something horrible. Other times, you know, red flags won't be seen on a cop and they'll do something horrible. I mean, it's a big country. Um, we're not going to have perfection. But when you have something as obvious as an increase in gun violence and there is simply less enforcement of illegal gun possession, that's part of that. Yeah, that's that's where I go. This is the crazy part. We just mm -hmm. arrested someone for a gun. Um, they're a public danger. You can't just treat it as a nonviolent offense and release them. And they're back with their little crew that same night. I mean, for years, yeah. I thought the idea of deterrence was always a little bit overrated. But I mean, come on now, um, bad actions have to have consequences. That is not that complicated. Sure. And, and recent, recently, Chief Brown from, um, from Chicago just made a plea to the judges that, you know, the chronic offenders, and just like you said, the, the gun offenders need to be held accountable and they're released because of these, these measures. And then the violent crimes predictable. But getting back to the homicide rate, I mean, here we are we're in the pandemic in 2020, we're all supposed to be sequestered and sheltered in place. How did we get to these rises in homicides? There was nobody on the street, are, are we? Well, violence went down when COVID kicked in at first, I think because of that, because fewer targets, yeah, the streets were quieter. Um, and that, by the way, is the way the rest of the world does, is the idea that, you know, just so many people just the, the, the grasp for any straw just to avoid the importance of policing and public safety. Mm. Um, and one can point out flaws of policing and work on ways to improve policing without, you know, without advocating uh, for mindless defunding or even abolition. Um, <clears throat> COVID did not increase violence. Um, it did contribute out, you know, to less policing because cops didn't want to interact with people. I don't want to say it's unrelated, if nothing else, because Look, it's the real world. It's all related. COVID was a big deal. Um, it would be foolish to say it's not related, but Canada didn't see an increase. Mexico, no other country saw an increase because mm -hmm. of COVID. Um, so it's a global pandemic, but the violence increase was uniquely American. So then logically you'd say, well, what happened here uniquely? And that gets to issues um, related to everything that happened post-Minneapolis. Post um, mm. You know, the, yeah, the, that... That was a big deal. Um, it changed policing uh, and it probably didn't change it for the better. You know, I made an analogy in another piece I wrote for the New York Daily News about, um, and this was uh, right at the start of the violence increase. Um, and I, I compared it to that old game of Jenga where you pull out little sticks um, and, you know, the little sticks of the criminal justice system. And you want the criminal justice system to be sort of 
the least oppressive model that still works. So yeah, you, you know, everything wasn't necessary. And we were sort of pulling out sticks without a problem for mm. decades in the reform movement. Um, but, you know, we just pulled out one too many. Um, and individually, you know, maybe we could have gotten away with any of the changes that happened, but collectively, no, it, it, the system mm -hmm. broke down. Yeah. Also, so the court system stopped. Let's not forget that. Um, sure. You know, so gun offenders that were arrested, um, at least in New York, they weren't being arraigned because they couldn't see grand juries. Uh, so they were given tickets and sort of indefinitely released. Mm -hmm. um, you know, court systems are local and state, so it depends, you know, on the jurisdiction. But but absolutely, you put all that together and um, it was it was catastrophic. So when you looked at the data, was was the data sufficient was there any sort of epidemiology yeah, the look data at... ever sufficient <laughs> no but i mean we have people in custody for murders can we go back and look and see are these the most heinous chronic offenders and what are they doing out on the street in the first place it's amazing we connection? don't know you know there's like one guy in chicago who keeps track of um, people released uh who commit a serious crime and i think he's you know I think he's in the high twenties now or something. Um, so that's, you know, it's not a huge number, but it's still, it's not zero. We know that. Um, again, these are the people who get caught again. Um, it's made tough partly, you know, the only time I've ever um, sort of been censored as a speaker, uh, I was uh, giving a talk for the New York state department of justice. And um, I was asked very politely and uh, <laughs> begged to not say anything bad about bail reform and he just said look cuomo's behind it um he, you know he signs the paychecks um please don't go there um and it wasn't but it's the only time that's ever happened to me in my, in my career so uh there are, there will be obstruction to try to get this data at the state level yeah um but it doesn't mean it can't be done uh but it's tough no we don't have good data data mm. on this and the pessimistic me things more and more doesn't matter because if you're if your beliefs are rooted in ideology those facts don't matter but then there still is i like to think a a vast um middle from from center left to center right that that does care about sort of the facts and the data and what work and and, and incremental improvement mm -hmm. um but you know then there'll be another bad police involved shooting next month and it could all break down. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but we do need better data. The data I gathered for the article was painstakingly gathered on a city by city basis mm. um, because the uniform crime report won't come out for another month or so. Um, so we don't, you know, we, we still don't have national data for last year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, in the 1930s, the UCR used to issue quarterly reports. Mm -hmm. um, how come we can't do that now? I mean, that, that, that to me is like low hanging fruit. Um, but anyway, that I, I, you know, I'd like to deal with the cards we have. Sure. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about bail, decarceration, uh, defunding, but first I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor. Police one.com is the number one resource for your up to the minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. 
Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's policeone, the number one, dot com forward slash registration. And we're back and I'm speaking with Peter Mosca's professor, author, and former law enforcement officer. And we're talking now a little bit about uh, the bail reform and the effects uh, and the decarceration, if you will. Uh, COVID, we released uh, thousands here in California um, from our 32 prisons uh, and county jails as well. Um, What has been, can you draw any direct um, effects to those who were released uh, prematurely because of COVID? Uh, is there, was there a spike in their activity? The NYPD, and I don't know if it's public data or not, but they talked about it in public, but they did um, social network analysis of released people. And I, I don't remember the percentage, but it was substantial. Uh, it wasn't so much that everyone released, like, and went out and shot somebody, but somehow they were at the scene of the shooting, be it shooter, victim, witness, friend, um, their presence was great. And that's not surprising. I mean, that's the way shootings happen. Um, so yes, there was an impact. How, you know, what it was, again, I don't know. Um, and we'll never know for sure. But to sort of just say <laughs> they were made us safer. No, it didn't. It, and, you know, and again, maybe it's still, if, if the increase wasn't so dramatic and so violent, you can say, well, maybe it's still better um, in a free society to have, you know, least restrictive uh, sanctions and so on. Um, but the other thing is, you know, bail reform is complicated. There are tons of, I mean, it depends on the state. And, you know, even in New York, you know, there are issues about disclosure. Um, there's issues about pre-trial detention. Um, you know, so the, there are many aspects to it. Um, sure. and, and we're just sort of focusing on the people getting released. But in a way, that's the easiest one to solve. Um, you, you know, the idea that... Uh, I mean, yeah, just the public safety needs to be, you know, every state and the District of Columbia takes account public safety in these decisions. So that's uniquely New York, Um, but it should be, it should be quick to fix. Um, I don't think that was the major cause, by the way. I mean, I think it matters. It all comes together, but states, many states had no bail reform and they too saw increases in violence. So Mm -hmm. you don't want to point your finger at one thing, but again, the common thread is you can see um, you know, using, it's hard to, I'm, I'm leery of a lot of data, except for shootings and murder. You know, how do you judge what cops are doing? Well, first of all, you can talk to them. Cops will tell you they're doing less. Well, that's a good clue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at sort of proxy measures that, that, that indicate discretionary activity. Well, they're not even proxy in some cases, but, you know, traffic enforcement, pedestrian stops, if, if that data is, is reliable, arrests for low-level offenses, you know, basically anything cops can choose not to do, but, you know, I don't, I don't have to explain discretionary policing to you, sure. um, but they're still answering calls for service, of course. Um, but you look at these other indicators and they, when they plummet, violence goes up. And sometimes in different cities, it's a slightly different time frame. Um, but it's, it's, it just, it, it constantly jumps out that, 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 that's an, I mean, that policing matters. I mean, that, at some level, that's all I'm saying. Um, but that's, that's what the debate has come to. Yeah. Thanks for getting the name of the show in your answer, by the way, policing matters. Uh, So that's, that's interesting. We're defunding now, or actually some cities are refunding, but in the move to defund money was shifted to nonprofits, to 
non-governmental agencies. Um, in LA recently, they gave money to dance um, groups. And I know we've given money to acting classes and anything to get people off the street. Is that in any way going to make a dent in the violent crime? No. <laughs> uh, but I mean, look, I'm not against those programs. And they might. I might say no to be a little bit glib. But the short answer is no, they won't. They're not violence reduction strategies. They might be good strategies. They might be good plans. Um, I'm not against funding those services. And to some level, they can't hurt. And honestly, they're not that expensive, given you know other things we spend money on. Um, I want those things to be funded more. Um, but first of all, no city has seen you know has seen these programs effectively reduce violence. Um, not at any level that can be scalable or transferred. Um, you know, there are individual programs that seem to be more effective than others. Um, and thinking particularly of like violence reduction, mm -hmm. uh, but it depends on who's running it and so on. Um, but a lot of defund did not actually care about these other programs. That's what I mean. It, it's rooted in abolition. Um, mm -hmm. They would have been happy just to defund. Um, the rest was sort of PR and dressing and, and to gain popularity. Um, it depends on the city, but generally about 5% of state and local funding goes to the police department. And it the local budgets are different because mostly it depends on whether this, the state funds local schools or not. So when the state funds schools, the police department's a greater percentage of the local budget. But if you look at money spent, it's about 5%, um, it's, it's, which is less than most people think. Uh, there is no reason that these the funding for these programs needs to come from that 5% of the budget. Mm -hmm. uh, there's other things that could be cut or God forbid we could raise taxes and pay for them. Um, in New York City, there's an agency called Human Resources. Um, it has a budget of $11 billion. No one's ever heard of this agency. It, it covers Department of Social Services, Department of Homeless Services, and God knows what else. Mm -hmm. um, it's more than the police department. So the idea that a few hundred million from the NYPD budget is suddenly going to magically solve these problems? No, it won't. Mm -hmm. um, these other, and now New York is unique. You know, San Francisco is probably similar in that it's a relatively wealthy city where these these programs exist um, and many cities simply don't have them. So that, that's a different sort of level. But in New York City, the, the problem with homeless services is not funding. Um, we're spending like 50 grand per homeless man, woman and child every year. The problem is um, the agencies either have the wrong goals, the wrong policies, and they're not being held responsible. Um, so yeah, I mean, let's find, let's figure out what works. Other countries, you know, we can use them as examples. They often do by other countries. I'm thinking of Canada or Western Europe, you know, they, these problems are not unsolvable, but they might be unsolvable given the current structure we have. And then the other part about defund is, and Seattle was the best or worst example of this, but in New York City as well, um, reasonable people can disagree about how much police should be funded. Um, an argument could be made that the NYPD budget was too large. I would say mm. a stronger argument could be made that uh, that West Coast budgets are too small. There's just a lot fewer cops out there per capita. Mm. And, you know, the, those are debates we should be having. If you want to cut the police budget, then you sit down with the police department and say, look, we want to cut your budget X percent in Y number of years. Let's figure out the best way to do that. Um, but it wasn't done that way. It was done without consulting the police department. It was done vindictively. It was done to punish police departments because cops killed a man in Minnesota. Um, and that's bad policy. 
And of course, then the parts that get cut are the parts that are also, I don't want to dismiss it as fluff because they matter, but if you have an agency where 80% of the funding goes to labor um, and you cut the budget 10%, there's not much else to cut. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I ran a master's program for ranking uh, NYPD executives at John Jay. That got defunded. The homeless outreach got defunded. Um, you know, training <laughs> got defunded. Uh, but there was because it wasn't done in any intelligent way. Right. Um, so that's that's the other problem. Yeah. And, you know, what you said at the beginning and what you just said now, uh, I interviewed Mo Kennedy. For, he's the head of the National School Resource Officers Association. And he said the same thing. He said, essentially, there are people laying in wait for any excuse to defund or abolish uh, police. And they saw the opportunity and they seized it. Certainly, you know, it, it, it struck a chord in America, the George Floyd incident. And uh, we had a lot of people uh, that were sick of being sheltered in place. And it was just a sort of a confluence for it all to come together. But he he said, just as you did, that there were people waiting for a reason and and we saw it happen and we and we're seeing the results. I mean, it's a social experiment gone awry, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, it's also, you know, it's very easy to take over um, local elected officials um, in cities and you don't need many votes in a Democratic primary in New York or San Francisco or Seattle to um, to win. Um, so if you have, I mean, you know, it's a messed up form of democracy, but it's our, it's what we have. So, you know, anyway, kudos for them for, for playing the system well. Yeah, if you can win an office like prosecutor that has total immunity, um, that's got real power. And the, you know, most people don't vote. So we get, you know, at some point, those who vote do get to decide these things. Um, but that said, we shouldn't mistake that necessarily for the will of the people. Um, you know, the defund movement is disproportionately white. Um, you get progressive white politicians and who don't, and their constituents don't live in neighborhoods where they're at risk of getting shot. Hmm. Um, you know, consistently poll after poll shows that black Americans want more policing more than white Americans do. I mean, that makes sense because they live disproportionately in higher crime neighborhoods. Um, That doesn't at all mean they don't want better policing and change for the better. Um, But those voices aren't getting heard enough. And there's really, you know, there's not any accountability among a lot of the the new progressive um, politicians um, in terms of the consequences of their action. They can keep saying slogans and talk about reimagining things. Um, and as long as they win the Democratic primary, they're, 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 their seat is safe. Um, but, you know, the fact that Eric Adams um, is our soon-to-be mayor-elect in New York City is, is kind of a big deal. Um, a couple of years ago, I never would imagine that a cop talking about, a former cop talking about public safety could get elected in New York City. Um, but he basically swept um, the outer borough uh, and, and Harlem Black and Hispanic vote. Um, that's telling. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing, you know, if you live in a high crime neighborhood and you hate cops for good or bad reasons, um, legitimately or not, that's a voice I also want at the table. Um, mm-hmm. But there's an arrogance that... Um, in, in telling other people how they should be policed. Right, um, right. We do need to keep focused on community policing. And I know that's a vague and almost useless term, Um, but listen to the residents of the neighborhood. Um, Politicians need to do that more and police, you know, police always need to do that more as well. 
Um, but those are the those are the voices we should be listening to. Sure, but but by that account, um, we law enforcement's constantly criticized in homicide investigations that in black and brown communities that uh, just pretty much across the board they have lower clearance rates, lower arrests. And then it's that sort of vicious cycle that we have a community that doesn't trust us or a community that says snitches end up in ditches or snitches with stitches and right. And every time I hear that word snitches, you know, it connotes that anytime you give information to the police, it's, it's bad. And so here we have that cycle. Homicides happen. Sometimes people don't even call the police. We get we get notified by shot spotter. And so how do we get back into the community to say, hey, look, help us solve the problems of violence within your own community? The first step, and there's a chicken and egg problem here, is, you know, it's easier to do when there's less violence. Um, remember, a lot of this uh, sort of decriminalization movement um, and less proactive discretionary policing uh, that was supposed, it was done in the name of police legitimacy, mm. um, which I kind of roll my eyes at that phrase. Uh, well, police legitimacy hasn't increased. Um, effective police have legitimacy. When, when people feel safe, there's police legitimacy. Um, it's kind of amazing how much slack people are willing to cut police for when they do mess up, as long as they think they're also um, well-intentioned, you know, not, not behaving bad maliciously. Um, and there's a modicum of safety. So in terms of clearance, look, uh, victim intimidation is, is a real thing. Um, that, uh, I don't think is addressed enough. Um, some people have good reason not to talk, but there's also the sense of, I mean, especially now if you talk and the person does, isn't even detained, um, you know, someone's got a gun, uh, you kind of be a fool to, if that person's going to get out that day and, and part of um, bail reform in New York made it a lot easier to get um, uh, witness information. Mm. Uh, um, that's, that has a chilling effect. Um, there's also in terms of clearance, I mean, look, these problems have been intractable. We're not gonna solve them. We can make them better. Uh, we could, we could uh, focus on non-lethal shootings as if they were lethal shootings and not say, well, because the person didn't die, we won't take it as seriously. Um, but a lot of clearance re- clearance rates differences re, um, reflects the circumstances of the murder. Hmm. Um, if the, or let's say a shooting. So if the victim's still alive, you know, if the first shooting I ever handled, I was still in field training. Guy was in an ambulance. I asked him for his name and he said, no, nah, I don't play that game. <laughs> oh, no. I was like the game where you don't tell me your name. Anyway, I got his name from him. I was a pretty good talker, I guess. Uh, but that shooting was dropped because he was an uncooperative victim. If the victim won't cooperate with prosecutors, it's, you know, your chances of you can't win those cases. Um, domestic violence murders um, are pretty easy to clear uh, because often they're the often the person is standing there with the murder weapon and says, "Yeah, I did it." Um, you know, before saying something stupid about why. Uh, but you know, th- those are the cases that get solved. Um, it's it's the it's the gang murders. It's it's the, it's the and then of course it's also you know stranger murders are hard to solve but in many ways they're easier because people will talk Mm. because it's it's, you know it wasn't somebody in the game you know if a kid gets killed people are much more likely to um to talk to cops um those issues matter but i don't know how much 
control policing as an organization can have on that individual cops can have a huge impact just a little bit of you know listening to people talking who correctly i don't know again how you scale that up or train for that um but given the system we have the court system we have it, it's it's very hard to um to bring to prove these cases beyond a reasonable doubt um, when people don't talk it, it, it's a real issue yeah but that's why the best thing to do is reduce violence before it happens um it's already too late when someone's killed i mean sure. yes it's good to bring the murderer to justice but it's far better to um to have infective you know gun enforcement i mean that to me it seems like such an obvious one um and i've seen the de- debate shift on that recently even um the problem is you can't measure crimes prevented um so it's, right. it's it's hard to take credit for that but um you know not only do you save the victim in many ways you save the potential criminal too because they mm-hmm. didn't do that crime sure. um but you know but you can't measure it very well you can't in in terms of of prevention, but in raw numbers, I mean, if you can get your sure homicide rates down below 300 in Baltimore, you're doing great. If you're getting them below 700 in Chicago, you're probably doing it's great. It's funny that Baltimore and New York City have the same benchmark when Baltimore's got you know, 580,000 people and New York is 8.3 million. Yeah, right. uh, but um, yeah, and the other, actually going back a bit to the to the, the article that got me on your show, um, in, ni- in the 1990s in New York City, when murders went down something like 70%, um, poverty actually increased in that mm-hmm. decade. There were more New Yorkers and more young New Yorkers living in poverty in 2000 than 1990. Um, the, what sociologists call the root causes, um, poverty, racism, unemployment, bad housing, healthcare, families, all, all the social and economic factors that matter. They matter a lot in the world and they might even matter more than crime. Um, but they're, they're, they're not the cause of violence that people say they are, um, or at least they can be ignored and violence can be brought down. Um, this idea that we, you know, people love saying we can't police our way out of this problem. That depends on the problem. There are a lot of problems we really can police our way out of. Hmm. Um, violence, strangely, is one of them. Maybe it's not the easiest one. Um, but, you know, it's very easy to change people's behavior in terms of where they do something, uh, when they do something, and who they do it in front of those things can very easily be policed um as a friend of mine said on on my podcast um it's about arresting behavior it's not about arresting the individual Mm -hmm. Um, that is i think what often people forget both cops and sort of the opponents of policing um it's not always about locking people up so some people need to be locked up um the goal and this you know gets back to robert peel and the foundation of police in london um it's it's maintaining order and preventing crime um and so we we need to get back to that a bit um but the first step in that and this worries me a bit um political leaders need to accept account responsibility and accountability for crime again um that kind of disappeared I think from the late 60s, which is before I was alive, through the 70s and 80s, where the every where the idea was, hey, it's all again society causing problems. Um, I think a monumental shift happened when um, Bill Bratton took over the New York City Police Department the first time and said he was going to bring down crime, mm-hmm. and everybody um, was said, you know, you're crazy, don't promise that, uh, and he did. Um, but that shift and the details are important, but pushing those aside, um, it was that saying it's on me 
And if the leaders don't say that, the police chiefs, um, somebody, God, I think it was St. Louis. I, I hate to get it wrong. Uh, some police chief last year, you know, murders doubled or something. He's like, I'd give myself an A. <laughs> And I was like, that's low. I mean, like, no, I, I understand it's not entirely your fault, but no, when murders double, you, you didn't do a good job. Right. Um, but if you don't realize that you're not going to do a good job. Um, and so I, I worry that, that in the great increase in violence last year, that, that political leaders naturally were very quick to say, Hey, not our fault. Right. Um, but that's you, even if it wasn't your fault, it's still your job. Um, so that's, I think, is the first step in getting, you know, in preventing a further increase in, in, in violence is for mayors, prosecutors, city council members and police chiefs um, to say, we're, we're going to figure this out. Um, we're not just going to blame abstract forces we can't control. Sure. Well, in, in wrapping up, yeah, I mean, you're, you're ahead of me there. I was going to ask you, what are our long-term solutions? And you say, hey, our electeds need to take responsibility. What about other... Um, things that have worked in the past. I mean, you bring up, you know, we were in thousands of homicides in New York before stop and frisk and then stop and frisk and a, an extension of Terry versus Ohio was implemented. And well, and there was, the, was, was that just a coincidence? It depends on what you, what we mean by stop and frisk. Look, stop, question and frisk is a tool. It's a tactic. It can be used and misused. Um, the great crime drop in New York um, it's, it's an interesting timeline and basically happened between 92 and 2000. And then again, after 2010, um, until recently, um, there was an entire lost decade in there um, where uh, murders were down a little, but shootings didn't. Um, so that might be from, you know, better health, uh, emergency room healthcare kind of stuff. Um, that was when stop, question and frisk went crazy. Um, and it was uh, it was under first Carrick and then and then Ray Kelly. Um, and what happened is the tale of police accountability started to wag the dog and Comstat became about producing numbers. And um, the irony was before that NYPD didn't keep a very accurate count of stops because it was a lot of paperwork they were required to. And then those forms, the UF 250 became a measure of productivity. Um, and it went and it I mean, it managed to, you know, there was a foot patrol program called Operation Impact, and it did reduce violence. And it, it's the only foot patrol program in, in world history that managed to make foot patrol unpopular um, because the cops were required with, you know, an informal but illegal quota system to stop people. Hmm. And so they started, you know, stopping the easy people. They started stopping my students. Um, rather, I mean, my students say, why don't they actually stop the criminals? Um, and I said, either they don't know, but probably because you're not going to, because you're more polite. Um, and it's not about you. It's about their stupid Number. quota system. Yeah. Um, it did, it, it was insane. And it, and it did not, and when it ended under Bratton's second term, um, crime did not go up. Um, that's different, by the way, and like Chicago has a different story where when they stopped stopping people, crime violence did go up. But I would argue those in Chicago, they stopped stopping people that needed to be stopped. And in New York, they stopped stopping people that didn't need to be stopped. So. But that doesn't mean the police shouldn't stop people based on reasonable suspicion. Um, sure. It was misused in New York, um, but that's not it's not that stops are bad. It's that how they were, how it was done was bad. Sure. Was bad, but it, it really set police back for years. That sure. That, so yeah, they moved away from articulating the stop to random stops, but checking a box. Yeah, sort of gesture. 
Yeah. Right. How many did you stop today? If we went to something like an operation ceasefire out of Boston, would that be effective in a place like Chicago? I worry. Um, ceasefire has been very effective. It's one of the few things that is, you know, we it's, it's literally save lives. Um, it seems to be less effective um, in larger cities. Mm. It hasn't. Uh, and I think it may just be hard to get everyone to get when the number of potential shooters increases past a certain level it may lose the personal touch in bigger cities it might be harder to get buy-in from the various groups that are needed and it's hard work um so it 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 doesn't seem to work well in cities that have more than you know 100 or 200 uh murders a year mm. um that's a sort of a very crude and simplistic analysis but i don't mean that to knock the fact that it does work in cities that where there's a more manageable number of um, potentially violent offenders. Mm. Um, but I, I, I'd be skeptical of it working in Chicago. Um, but that doesn't, again, mean elements. Look, it's a, it's a carrot and stick approach, which is important. Um, it's a community uh, based system of gathering information and explaining. So th those are, you know, important uh, things that can happen anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, it seems to be hard to scale that up to the, to, to the big cities. Hey, so I appreciate your time. I appreciate your research and uh, all your expertise that you brought to us today. How else can our listeners find out to where you're writing and uh, what you're talking about? I know you just mentioned uh, your violence reduction pro project. Where can we find those? Uh, you can find all of it. Well, I have a website, petermoscos.com, M-O-S-K-O-S. Uh, more specific, I mean, there are links from there. More specifically, I have a website called Quality Policing, uh, qualitypolicing.com, which um, goes to all my sort of police-related things, which includes a, a blog I don't really keep up much now, um, a podcast quality policing and this violence reduction project, um, which is again, a you know, co collection of, uh, I think about 30, 35 essays from, from people who care. <laughs> that was the important thing. And, and I'm always welcome new submissions to that, by the way, it's not closed or anything. It just has to focus on things we can do to, to bring down violence now. Um, and I wrote a book, you know, cop in the hood, uh, from now many years ago about my, my, my brief time in, in Baltimore, but, um, I still like to think it's a good read. All right. I'm going to look for it. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, it's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, as you can tell, I, I like talking about this stuff and with someone who, who, who can hold their end of the conversation. So thank you. Oh, no, it's been great. I look forward to reading more of your articles. I'm going to look at your book and uh, I'll be talking to you again real soon. To our listeners, thanks again for listening. I hope you found today's show interesting. Uh, look at Peter Moskos' work at qualitypolicing.com. Look at the Violence Reduction Project, petermoskos.com. And if you're enjoying the show, take a moment, leave us a review, rate us on uh, Apple Podcasts. And if you want to get in touch with me or someone on the Policing Matters team, just drop us a line at policingmatters at police1.com, policingmatters at police1one.com. Drop a note, share your ideas. Anybody you want to hear from, uh, maybe you'll appear on the mailbag episode. All right. Talk to you again real soon. In the meantime, stay safe, be well. I'm Jim Dudley. <laughs>